as if God and nature were one. They see him in a leaf, in a stone, in a shell. The islands are covered with trees. Forgive me, Don Cristobal. What about gold? It's not the purest metal I've ever seen. Is there more? There's the age-old poem which so many of us grew up learning in school. Remember, as Columbus Day approached? In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He took three ships with him too and called aboard his faithful crew. Mighty, strong, and brave was he as he sailed across the open sea. Some people still thought the world was flat. Can you even imagine that? Then, of course, there was another famous bit, which went, As soon as I arrived in the Indies, in the first island which I found, I took some of the natives by force, in order that they might learn and might give me information of whatever there is in these parts. And so it was that they soon understood us, and we them either by speech or by signs, and they have been very serviceable. At present, those I bring with me are still of the opinion that I come from heaven. That written by Columbus himself in a letter to King Ferdinand II of Aragon and Queen Isabella in March of 1493, after the explorer had returned from his first voyage to what at the time he still believed to be Asia in what eventually come to be called the New World a return trip wherein he brought back by force approximately 20 Native Americans, only eight of which survived, along with some wildlife and small portions of gold in order to prove the truth of his writings. Christopher Columbus has long been among the most polarizing of historical figures, and hardly ever more so than in 2020, where across the nation and around the world, statues, parks, streets, and schools which bear his name have been at the center of protest, many of them turning violent, with some proclaiming him an Italian and all-American hero, while others refusing to let the great American genocide, historically predicated on the success of his early voyages, slip quietly through history, as it has from so many history books. So how does one, leading up to the 500th anniversary of Columbus's legendary first voyage, create a film which takes a look at both sides of the man and attempts to piece together, as if with a puzzle, bits of history, personal journals, newly discovered archaeological and other evidence to draw a composite of one of the most debated figures of all time. Well, leave it to Ridley Scott. Lauded today as the director of such historical dramas as Gladiator and Kingdom of Heaven, and even more contemporary historical dramas such as Black Hawk Down and American Gangster, back in 1992 he was mostly known as the man behind highly stylized and extremely pulpish genre films such as Alien, Blade Runner, Legend, and Black Rain. And in a year which saw three other Christopher Columbus films, 
one another historical drama, one a comedy, and one even an animated family film, I kid you not, Scott's fascinating blend of hardcore fact and fascinatingly plausible speculation today stands as perhaps one of the best examinations of Columbus outside a History Channel documentary. It's certainly the best film ever made about the explorer and the future path towards which his actions would eventually come to steer the entire world. I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online, and welcome to the Movie Sneak Minipod Buried Treasure of the Week, setting the record straight with Ridley Scott's 1492 Conquest of Paradise. Take another voyage. Thank you. But without your brothers, nor are you to return to Santo Domingo or any of the other colonies. The New World is a disaster. And the old one, and the chairman. I know I shouldn't tolerate his impertinence. Then why? Because he's not afraid of me. I know some of you were thinking earlier when I said Scott's film was perhaps the best Columbus film ever made. Come on, be for real. I mean, how many Columbus films have there been? Well, believe it or not, quite a few others over the years. Maybe not as many as, say, about Pearl Harbor. <laughs> but more major films than those about Moses or the Revolutionary War, to be sure. Among them, the 1923 German silent film Christopher Columbus, and American silent film of the same name released during the same year. The also same-named but non-related 1949 drama starring Frederick March as Cristobal Colon. The 1951 faith-based film Dawn of America. 
Uh, the Salkinds, Christopher Columbus, The Discovery, directed by James Bond's John Glenn, written by the Godfather's Mario Puzo, and starring Marlon Brando, Tom Selleck, Rachel Ward, Benicio Del Toro, and George Carafes as Columbus, it released around the same time as Ridley Scott's film. And there's also been a slew of feature-length and TV documentaries, as there are also this year. So what makes Ridley Scott's film infinitely more fascinating than any of the others? You have to go back to its original script and the reason it was written in the first place for that one. The screenplay, which would come to be known as 1492 Conquest of Paradise, was written by French journalist, screenwriter, and director Rosalind Bosch. And if you take a look at her body of work from the 1980s to the present, be it magazine pieces, screenplays, and more, you'll notice a common, for lack of a better term, simultaneous anthropological and sociopolitical thread running through the bulk of it. For France's La Poix magazine, she wrote in-depth pieces on Stephen Hawking, did investigative reporting on child trafficking in Tranca, the ongoing Basque conflict in Spain, and more, all of which led to her in 1991 being nominated as a finalist for the Albert Londre Prize, France's equivalent of the Pulitzer. As for film, she's been the screenwriter and or director of five features to date, the most internationally known, besides 1492, arguably being La Ralfe, The Roundup, from 2010, starring Inglorious Bastards Melanie Laurent and Leon the Professional's Jean Renault in the fact-paced story about the Parisian Jews who, after the Nazi takeover of France, were rounded up by the German army and French Vichy collaborators and taken to internment camps. Bosch feels her sense of social conscience stemmed from the fact that her father was a refugee Catalan who had fled Spain in search of political asylum when the country fell under the dictatorial rule of Codillo, Francisco Franco. The need to shine a light on how one group of people felt the manifest destiny need to subjugate another was something her father ended up carrying throughout his entire life, and his daughter would carry throughout hers. Bosch brought this same historical point of reference to her 1492 script, which she began writing while researching a 1987 magazine piece on nationwide plans Spain was at the time planning for the 500th anniversary celebration of Columbus's first voyage. It was during this research that within the archives of Seville, not far from Columbus's final resting place, she came across his letters to King Ferdinand and Isabella and felt they'd make the basis of a fascinating, never-before kind of film. Stop him! Bring him back! Says he has confounded him. He's lying. Tell him to put his hand on the table like this. Tell them! I know they are hiding the gold from us. Tell them, this is how we treat thieves and liars. Don Adrian, you cannot do this thing. Can't. I can't. Bosch and producing partner and eventual husband, Elaine Goldman met with Ridley Scott and American producer Mimi Polk, who'd recently worked with Scott on Someone to Watch Over Me and Thelma and Louise. And they, especially Scott, were taken with a two-pronged approach of exploring Columbus. The first part was the fact that Columbus was indeed a, gotta admit it, brave rebel in a dangerous era. 
an era where just disagreeing with the established church could and did often result in heretics being burned at the stake. And a few early sequences in 1492 dramatizes this. One rather gorily, as Columbus portrayed by Gerard Depardieu and his son witnessed such a burning in the town square. And a couple of later scenes when Columbus practices almost as for a debate with a Catholic university theologian, the French connection's Fernando Rey, the words which they hope will help him get financing for his voyage without branding him as a fire-pyre-worthy heretic. This, as Cristobal's belief in newer forms of navigation, including by the stars, a technique practiced by the Moors, goes against the writings of Ptolemaeus, writings which most of the church and government swore by at the time. The second prong in the Columbus portrait seeks to explain how such a person, a non-noble, self-educated, a widower who after the death of his first wife lived with but failed to marry another woman, Beatrice de Arana, and had a son with her out of wedlock. Essentially a man who, with the exception of having the reputation of a very confident explorer, was looked down upon by more than a few nobles of the day. So how this man, who was more than likely discounted as of lesser station, could in time come to consider another people, those of the Americas, as lesser, that is the character arc bridge which Bosch and Scott seek to traverse with their film. And while no one was privy, or at least one of first-hand records exist, of two personal conversations between Columbus and others, the film does a pretty damn good job of connecting the dots in the most plausible of human nature ways. The records of others who knew Columbus best were used in this regard, and among them none more relied upon than the Columbus biography written by none other than his son, Ferdinand, who at 13 actually accompanied his father on his fourth and final voyage to the New World, and decided to write the book when it became evident that the Spanish crown was attempting to over time write his father out of the history of the expeditions to the Americas. Ferdinand becomes a narrator of the film, portrayed by American actor Lauren Dean of Billy Bathgate, Apollo 13, and Gattaca. And through his eyes and words, we see Columbus as a man so desperate to prove his theories and achieve a level of financial success long denied him because of his station, that he becomes willing to lie to his own crew, telling them the trip will take no longer than seven weeks, it took ten, bring back natives to Spain by force to prove the success of his first voyage, promise the Spanish government gold, then allow and take part in the slaughter of American natives in search of it, and this after he claimed he wanted to bring the word of God to them. In real life, Columbus was arrested by a government representative after returning to Hispaniola during his third voyage and finding it in chaos. He was also charged with treating not only the natives, but the Spaniard settlers who had immigrated to the Americas poorly, many of them claiming he had misled them in regards to the riches awaiting them and protesting his governorship in the Spanish court. Columbus even had some of his own crew hanged. But, believe it or not, he was able to successfully dispute the charges, and while he was removed as governor of Hispaniola, unlike in the film, he did not spend time in prison or die there, as many stories have claimed. After his fourth voyage, his health rapidly decreased in what some believed was an extended bout of influenza or gout, but the described symptoms of which later forensic scientists speculated was rapidly advancing reactive arthritis, a super-inflammation of the joints, caused by either an intestinal bacterial infection or sexually transmitted disease. Columbus demanded that the Spanish crown live up to the letter of its contract with him and pay him and his family the 10% of all profits taken out of the New World. But because he'd been removed from his position as governor, they felt their contract with him had been voided, or at least that's the excuse they used. 
after Columbus's death in 1506 at age 54, for the next near 30 years, his heirs launched the Pleitos Colombinos, a series of lawsuits against the Spanish government, which eventually were settled by granting his heirs certain token titles of nobility, parcels of land in Hispaniola, and symbolic annual monetary residuals paid to both Columbus's children and grandchildren. Within the confines of Ridley Scott's just-over-two-and-a-half-hour film, many of the aforementioned historical incidents are touched upon, and a fascinating and not entirely positive but fair portrait of the explorer is quite vividly painted. The phenomenal cast of 1492 Conquest of Paradise includes Depardieu as Columbus, Sigourney Weaver as Isabella, Armand de Sante as Gabriel Sanchez, an amalgam of various nobles and Castile antagonistic to Columbus and his voyage. The aforementioned Lauren Dean as Columbus's son, Ferdinand, Angela Molina as Beatrice de Arana, Ferdinand's mother, Frank Langella, Fernando Rey, Michael Wincott, Chiqui Cario, Kevin Dunn, Arnold Vosloo, and numerous others. Scotch production shot in historic Spain, in Trujillo, Seville, Casares, and even at the actual Cathedral of Salamanca, and in Costa Rica, doubling for the New World. Production designer Norris Spencer, who worked with Scott on Black Rain, the film in Louise, built 10 massive sets in Costa Rica, none more sprawling than that of Columbus's capital city of Isabel. Costume designer Charles Node, whose work in Blade Runner, Legend, Never Say Never Again, and Braveheart is now legendary, <laughs> created over 3,000 costumes for 1492, the most memorable surely being Queen Isabella's eight different royal gowns, including the gold embossed fabric gown with a jeweled headpiece and 30-foot train. Operational seagoing replicas of the three primary vessels of the first voyage were built near full size. The Pinta and Santa Maria in England and the Nina in Brazil. The score for 1492 was composed and performed by legendary Greek musician Vangelis, best known to the world at large for his Oscar-winning score to Hugh Hudson's Chariots of Fire, but equally respected within film circles for his work on Antarctica, Roger Donaldson's The Bounty, Carl Sagan's Cosmos, and of course, Ridley Scott's earlier Blade Runner. Utilizing a battalion of keyboards, choir, ethnic instrumentation, harp, and ear-arresting atonal sound designs of all kinds, it was a shock that the 1492 score, while cited as one of the film's assets by critics, didn't initially prove nearly as popular with the general public as did some of the composer's earlier works. But that would quickly change as over the next few years, German IBF light heavyweight champ Henry Maske began using the Conquest of Paradise theme as his own theme, uh, Portugal's Socialist Party used the same theme as the musical calling card for its general election campaign, which it won. It became the theme for two professional rugby teams, one in England and one in New Zealand, and it also became the theme for more than one Cricket World Cup championship. While released in the U.S. by Paramount, 1492, an English, French, and Spanish co-production with a budget of $47 million, most of it raised through international pre-sales, was one of the biggest independent films ever made. Unfortunately, it didn't make a huge splash at the box office, nor with many critics for that matter. While Roger Ebert was among the few who were impressed, most were not inspired by its so-called dark take on the subject matter. Opening to the day on the 500th anniversary of Columbus's landing in the New World, October 12, 1992, 1492 took in a relatively paltry $60 million then all but disappeared after its original 1993 VHS and Laserdisc releases for almost 25 years, 
till a decent DVD and Blu-ray released from the gang at Kino Lorber. It's also presently available to stream on various outlets, including free with Amazon Prime. Me personally, I never found Ridley Scott and Rosalind Bosch's 1492 dark, or popular word at the time, revisionist. Just honest. Honest in the sense that a film doesn't have to be either inspirational or a scathing indictment of. It can be both. In the end, I found, and still find, Scott's intimate historical epic to be the ahead-of-its-time version of not destroying a Columbus statue or placing it on a pedestal either, but placing it within, say, the context of a museum where it can be examined from all angles and debated and discussed from all angles. That's the proper context for a figure as loaded and appropriately controversial as Christopher Columbus. And Scott's cinematic museum, so to speak, grants the man both his due, but also calls him and his legacy and history to account as well. I'm Craig Jamison of Gold Cottage Online, and thanks for joining me with the Movie Sneak Minipod Buried Treasure of the Week. Reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only.